Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. My name is Tyson Popplestone, and today on the show, I am excited to introduce to you a hydration expert coming at us from London in the UK. Now, Andy Blow started Precision Hydration back in 2011 with the intention of helping target and individualize elite level uh, hydration plans for athletes in all sports. The beauty with a bloke like Andy, though, is his passion for the subject doesn't remain limited to helping out elite athletes. So today, we have a particular focus on common myths around hydration, how it is that we know that we're actually hydrated well enough and effectively enough for us and the demands that we're putting on our bodies each day. I also, at the start, for about the first 15 minutes, just tap into the idea of the business. I've caught up with Andy a couple of times in the past and had heard a little bit around the science behind hydration, but I hadn't heard a lot about what was the inspiration behind actually getting started with a company like Precision Hydration. We hear about the difference with him uh, to companies like Gatorade, Powerade, and uh, Staminade, a number of other performance drinks which you'll often see out on the market. We hear about some of the early struggles, the early challenges, and why things have started to change in a big way when it comes to elite athletes using precision hydration. So, hey, you don't have to be an elite athlete or an athlete at all to get anything out of this particular conversation. It's a really helpful chat just for any of you who are trying to maximize your um, feeling of well-being or your, your, your sense of just getting through a day more effectively and even just ticking that box of knowing that you're hydrated effectively for what it is that you're doing. So, hey, really hope you enjoy it. Make sure if you're listening to this only, uh, you go and jump across onto YouTube, hit subscribe. It's under my name there, Tyson Popplestone. You can also watch the clips from the podcast over at Instagram, which is just under my name. But for now, welcome to the show for the very first time, hydration expert and founder of Precision Hydration, Mr. Andy Blow. So what are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing. But I reckon this is the first time I've ever sat down with you and had a bird's eye view. It's a very impressive setup. What's um? What's going on here at the moment? Uh, yeah, we've got, we've got a new conference room at work. So we've got a new massive, you can't see it obviously because I'm talking to you on it, but we've got a massive new TV and uh, a decent camera, hopefully. Uh, so we can, we can do group conference calls. We do our group stand-up calls in the morning and in the evening with the company here. So it's a nice setup. And we've got a lovely clean and clear room where no one's allowed to leave a load of their personal rubbish lying around so you feel quite you feel quite calm in here well, it's away from the clutter see i'm i'm coming at you from the upstairs room of my house uh don't be fooled by what you see on screen i've got a number of night lights around me i've got baby clothes uh, there should be a room in we're about to move out and i think the next room there's going to be a dedicated conference room for me where that should that same rule should apply because <laughs> the nature of just having kids running around the house is there's just shit absolutely everywhere all the time. And my wife and I are constantly laughing about the fact that you just have to be so on the ball to even have some semblance of like clean and organized and routined. Um, yeah, man. So that's the, the rest of it. I'm very jealous about your, your uh, luxurious new room. I think I've had a, a little bit of an insight into some of the rooms because as we've spoken about on the Relax Running podcast, I've, um, uh, I'm quite a big fan of Matt Fox and his work at Sweat Elite. And I think when he did one of the sweat tests with you guys, he had the cameras in the offices. So I've always sort of wondered what the actual setup looks like because since we've met, I've not yet been back to the UK. So I haven't had a chance to come in and actually say g'day. But what, what's the setup like there? Yeah, we're in like a sort of, it's a bit like a co-working type space here, but with lots of private 
rentable rooms and workshops downstairs. So we've actually converted one of the big workshops into a warehouse with a big, you know, it's got a roller shutter door. So that's where we do all the stock picking and where the the courier companies come up and pick up every day to take the take the orders out. That used we used to have that boarded off, so it was like fifty percent office, fifty percent warehouse. But as we've grown, we kind of needed the warehouse space. So we've not we then moved into an office upstairs, kind of almost above it, um, which is a nice kind of airy space. It's a corner office with big windows, which is really nice. Um, and then we've got two or three other little rooms, like the one I'm sat in now for private conferences or meetings and, and that type of thing. So it's a nice setup for a growing business because we can just gradually take on more spaces as we need it. Uh, and then, and also retract quite quickly. So I think it's sort of, you know, you can, you can take, um, rooms for a month or two here if you want to, which is really good because, you know, flexible office space is hard to come by sometimes. Yeah, I can imagine that's true. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting you talk about you guys as a growing business because the last 12 months especially, it's been amazing here in Australia just to see how many more people, only in the running scene, I'm familiar with. I can imagine this is all across the board, are starting to use precision hydration. I feel like in the time, I think we did our first chat back in maybe early 2019 or 2020, it must have been actually. And from that time, it's it's been really interesting. Like I know there's a number of top Aussie runners using the products now. It's it's starting to uh, really become a bit of a remover and a shaker in the industry. When, when did you guys officially launch? We launched quite a long time ago in 2011. So we've been we've been at it for quite some time now. Um, and you're right, the last two or three years has really seen the growth trajectory get steeper. But it's only really been a function of the fact that if you're if you're growing a business organically and sort of that's what we've been doing the whole time is is if you get say say even if you're growing at 100 percent if your customer base is really small and your revenue numbers are really small 100 percent growth is is great in terms of the fact that you're doubling but if it's doubling a very small number that's still a relatively small number but then at some point obviously that starts to get bigger and bigger and we've managed to maintain our rate of growth in the last couple of years and, and the numbers have got a bit bigger and i think that's why it's, it's lovely to hear you say that that you're sort of seeing us around and about a bit more because it's definitely the case that, that that feels like what's happening. I was in the US last week. I was in Salt Lake City and I was wearing the, the T-shirt that I'm wearing now with the company logo on it. And I walked into a, a climbing, sort of outdoor running climbing store. And immediately the guy from behind the counter came over and said, oh, do you work for Precision? My wife is a runner. She uses your products. And that was the first time that's kind of happened to me just in a random place a long way from home. And that was really cool. So the name is obviously getting out there a little bit. That's awesome, man. That's a unique combination of uh, sports to combine. And out, what was it, a climbing and running store? Yeah, it was um, It was that company called Black Diamond, if you've heard of them. They make kind of, I think they're, they're big in climbing, but they also starting to get into trail running. They make some really good trail running packs and apparel and things. So I was just kind of mooching around there, killing some time while I was waiting for a taxi to turn up. And uh, yeah, it was cool just to be doorstep by someone you know, who, whose wife like really enjoyed using the products. Um, yeah, it's it, quite, it was, I what, felt like we started to arrive. <laughs> Say that again. I felt like we'd started to arrive, yeah, you know, man. when someone starts to. Yeah, that's interesting. It would have been funny. I would have loved to have been there when you got to tell him that it was actually your company whose shirt you were ripping. <laughs> yeah, I didn't actually get that far. I just kind of said that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we just had a chat about the products and yeah, it was quite, 
it's good. Oh, see, that's the difference between you and me. If I had started a company that I went to America and someone recognized, it would have been the first thing I told them, <laughs> which is <laughs> probably why you're in your position. Yeah, what was the um, what was the nature of the way you started it? You said, uh, what, were you not advertising at all at the start? You were pretty keen just to let things spread naturally through word of mouth or what was the uh, mindset going into that? Yeah, it wasn't so much um, that we were keen to do that. It's just that we didn't raise very much money at all when we started the business. It was a group of four of us that put some money in together. And most of the money honestly went on buying stock and getting the basic business administration set up. So we didn't actually have a very grand budget for advertising or marketing. A lot of what we did was was reliant on word of mouth, um, you know, getting the word out there through contacts and kind of low key marketing. We went to a lot of events and expos in the early days to actually meet customers um, that was obviously well, well, sort of pre-pandemic, and when the in- when internet sales were, de- were definitely significant, but not anywhere near as dominant as they are now. So we we had a vision that maybe actually getting out to events was the best way to reach people, and it kind of was in the sense that it allowed us to learn very quickly by chatting to people what they liked and what they didn't like about the products and what they thought about them. But it's also obviously not massively scalable. Um, or not as easily scalable as stuff online is. So I think that that meant that we we were always naturally destined to grow pretty slowly to start with. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's a cool approach. It's interesting that whole world of expos. That's something that I'd never really even considered till last night. I just started the um, the American Gladiator documentary here in Australia, and they were talking about how they were trying to get that show off the ground. And I was thinking of I was actually thinking about us because. Uh, uh, just flirting with the idea and I'd, I'd taken some notes yesterday about a few things I wanted to speak to you about but just the idea of launching a company or a television show or whatever is a really daunting prospect at the best of times but it's funny when you look at a company that whether it's a Nike or American Gladiators or whatever it is that you're looking at that's established you always just look at that and assume that there's been no real um, holes that they needed to hurdle no real challenges it's Funny how you look at some other company and you assume that the grass is greener and it was just a really smooth run. But it's so interesting that you talk about the trajectory that you guys are on in growth now. Like that's 12 years after a company started. And this is something that I've come to appreciate, even with relaxed running and so many things. Joe Rogan always says that, um, you know, anyone who's been doing comedy, which is a big passion of mine for less than 10 years, doesn't really know what they're doing. And I'm just closing in on five years now and sometimes leave gigs going, this is so easy. But then I'll go to another gig, like I said before I hit record, and you go, okay, no, that makes a lot of sense. I've got so much to learn. So it's a, yeah, it is really interesting. Are there a lot of starters in the industry that you're in now? Because to be honest, until I met you, I didn't really know a lot about the industry. So from my perspective, it was just precision hydration and no one else. And then now I've started to become, uh, you know, a bit more deliberate with marathon preparation and training. I've heard of a few other brands, but I've just I've developed a, a taste for your guys' stuff. I enjoy running with it. I've um. It, I've started just to use some of the carb gels on my run, which has been really good. But what's the actual market like, man? Have you have you had to rub shoulders with a couple of big dogs to become a little more established in the scene? Yeah, there is the sports nutrition industry is pretty massive these days. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of big players in it. Sort of companies that are owned by the huge food companies. Gatorade is probably the the most globally famous, who are owned by PepsiCo. Um, and then Coca-Cola have Powerade, and then I think Nestle own Power Bar, or certainly did own Power Bar. Um, so there's lots, there's lots of sort of big established brands. Cliff Bar is another huge one. Goo, uh, Lucasade, 
and you could keep rattling them off. And so there's there's some massive players in the space. Uh, there's there's also loads and loads of more going down the line. There's more kind of specialised and more niche um, people like us. We're one of the still one of the smaller players, I would say, in the market. But I think we're we've defined our niche as being in you know endurance sports in particular. We do quite a bit in team sports as well. Uh, behind the scenes so we sell to a lot of premier league football teams rugby teams nfl teams in america that kind of thing but but that's not what most people know that we do what what most people know us for is triathlon ultra running marathon running long distance cycling that kind of thing because that's where the products are a great fit and i think as the as the market for sports nutrition has become more mature over the years it's become more segmented because people realize that know or or believe at least that it used to be seen that Gatorade was a drink good enough for NFL players so it was good enough for all athletes and now it's like well if you're a if you're a guy who's running the Gold Coast Marathon are your needs the same as someone who's playing American football or baseball like probably not so do you need a more specialized product and I think as it's become more segmented more people have come into the market we've seen quite a few players come and go in the 10, 12 years that we've been around, because like anything, like the failure rate of new startup businesses in any sector, I think is pretty high. Um, and it depends on the model. And we've seen some some players come in and do really, really well. Um, since I think uh, the American company Scratch Labs started around the same time that we did. And I know some of the guys behind that, they've done really, really well by the sound of things. That's That's a pretty big company now. Uh, obviously, in more recent years, you've had Morton, a Scandinavian company that's backed you know, by a pharmaceutical company, come in with a with an innovative product line, and they've they've certainly got a huge presence. Whether or not they're profitable or sustainable, I don't know, but they're definitely big in the market. But the the thing that's helped us, I think, over the last ten or twelve years, apart from whatever hard work and right moves we've made ourselves has been the fact that the whole industry has just grown. There's so many people, more people doing so many diverse endurance sports now that I think there's just a growing marketplace and there's room for a lot of different people with a lot of different specialisms. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Gatorade as a, a another um, company that you compare yourself to because it's when I, when I look at you guys, and when I look at Gatorade, I look at Gatorade as a very, very uh, I think this is, I don't know if this is what you meant when you said it's good enough for an NFL player or whatever, so it's good enough for the general public. But I, I see them as very, very general. It's almost like they're just trying to reach as many people as they possibly can. When I go to their website, I mean, I'm sure if you dig deep enough, there might be something there, but there doesn't seem to be any real specialised treatment of, of any elite performer. It's just like, let's see how many drinks we can possibly sell. And the reason I say that is I'll go down to the local supermarket here and they're in the aisles next to Coca-Cola. They're in the aisles with all the soft drinks, fizzy drinks. Just in my mind, and I don't know how many people actually feel like this, when I think of Gatorade, I just think of like a sugar drink now. I never I never really consider it as like a, a drink for elite performance. So even going into a marathon that I'm preparing for at the moment, it's, it's not something that I'd really consider touching. That's uh, obviously been a focus of your guys, like that real specialised hydration. And whenever I point someone towards you, it's always about that individualized approach. So you're, you're trying to create um, a bit more of a niche brand like tailored to, to the individual athlete rather than just going, all right, let's just see how many supermarkets we can get our product in just for that bottom line, you know, dollar result. 
Yeah, hundred percent. We're we're all about. We started out being all about individualization. So individually individualizing hydration based on your individual electrolyte losses, which I think was something that the industry wasn't doing, was barely doing at all, and, and certainly not doing very well before we came along. And then I think what we also learned during that process was that led us to having a lot of one-to-one interactions with customers because we were selling direct to them. And what we realized was that there's a lot of fundamentals that athletes need help with, even even on the simple stuff like how to mix their drinks up or how many how, how much to take per hour. Same with energy gels, like how many of these things do you need per hour in order to perform at your best? The basics of the education, which just aren't very well catered for in the market. There's some fantastic products out there, you know, around, you know, not just not, not just limited to ours. There's some really good products in the market, but I don't think anyone else does as good a job as we do in terms of taking athletes under their wing and either using digital tools or one-to-one interaction to really educate them on what they need, how they need to use them. It's a bit like selling someone a really lovely set of tools, but not teaching them how to do DIY with them. You know, you can you can buy the best stuff, but if you don't use it right, you're not going to get the best results. And so where we've doubled down over the years is that personal one-to-one interaction with athletes, be it through having a sweat test to understand your hydration needs, be it through having free 20-minute online video calls that we started during covid with athletes or as you know, me and the team hosting webinars going out to clubs and organizations and doing talks for people writing educational blog articles and magazine articles we we've always been this kind of like education first and the products will follow mentality and i think that's that's given us a bit of a USP in the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, you're no stranger to competitive sport. You're a tri uh, a triathlete. Were you an Ironman? Is that what you're competing in in your heyday of competition? Yeah, I did. I did quite a few Ironman races. I did a lot of half Ironman races, Xterra, which is off road triathlon. Um, I've also done a bit of uh, ultra running and you know all sorts of regular running races, um, long distance swimming, kayaking, loads loads of different stuff. So I've got a, fairly broad background in those kind of endurance sports. Yeah, because I don't ever remember there being a real key focus on um, individual like fueling and hydration, even going back. I was competing at 2013 was my last year, and I know there would have been stuff around for sure. I mean, you existed at that time, like you already said, but it could have been a focus point for me. But that that real tailored approach to fueling and hydration, it, it just it didn't seem to um, – be a real point of consideration i mean in the running world there was running training there was a little bit of gym training maybe do some stretching get a good night's sleep do some supplements and you know see what happens but was that your experience when you were actually competing and was that sort of your entrance into the world that you're in now like it's a it's such a niche field to an outsider that the idea of becoming a a professional and developing not only you know an expert knowledge in the subject of hydration but a company that supports the hydration of others just seems like such a random field to go into. Like what's the origin story for you? Yeah, I basically, when I was an athlete, I had problems with hydration because I sweat a lot and I lose lots of salt in my sweat. And I didn't really understand. I knew that I sweated a lot, but I just thought that meant I needed to drink a bit more. And it, it wasn't until I started competing internationally in really hot places that I found that my performance dramatically suffered compared with how it was in the cold. And that was what led me to look into it, get a sweat test done with a friend of mine who was a medic and sort of sent me down this journey of really understanding 
the need to individualize hydration when you're doing long, hot, sweaty events. And I, I had a I had a degree in sport and exercise science, so I had a basic grounding in the physiology of it. And I was already working with athletes doing physiological tests. So the idea of doing a sweat test was quite a natural fit for me. It was something I understood about selling, you know, testing services to athletes. So initially the, the plan was to was to create a business around selling sweat testing services and sweat testing equipment. But it became apparent pretty quickly that whilst there was demand for that, the real opportunity from a business point of view and what athletes were really looking for was a, a solution off the back of that test. So that's when we decided that it was time to develop our own drinks and kind of marry them together with the sweat test to create an, a unique service. Because I think you, you're 100% right that that kind of thing just didn't exist. If you were maybe really a really, really top athlete, let's say you were, you know, in your in your world being looked after by the AIS or BIS or something like that, and and you you were doing really well but exhibited some problems that might have been put down to, you know, lack of understanding about fueling and hydration and nutrition. Maybe you might have got to work one to one with a dietitian or a sports scientist who could who could act actually look at you as an individual and help you solve those problems but you've already had to rise to a significant level to get access to that kind of service or maybe you come at it from another angle and you're just wealthy enough to go and seek one-to-one nutritional consulting yourself but if you i bet and it's still the case now if you reach out to 99 percent of sports nutrition companies for help and advice their customer service side is often very weak and that it's it's you know, you, you contact the customer service department and we do this. We mystery shop the customer service departments of our competitors. And quite often they're, they're fine if you want to find out where your parcel is that you ordered from them because they need to look into the tracking number or something like that. But if they, if you want to know how many gels to use an hour or, you know, what kind of how to pair different products together, you get pretty boilerplate standard advice rather than anyone taking a, an individualized look. So that's that's where we felt there was a gap and we've we've tried to exploit that and tried to, you know, try to sort of come in and, and fill the void in between high end elite one to one consulting and just the yeah, read the back of a packet and get on with it approach that most athletes have had to take for a long time. Yeah, it's interesting just hearing people trying to break into a sporting world, especially it's you know, whether it's fueling and hydration or the actual product line. I mean, uh, before when I did the example of, or or I referred to this idea of a company just not having any dramas, trying to create a successful product. I was thinking of Nike as I spoke about that. But I mean, I've read Phil Knight's book, A Shoe Dog, and I've I've seen enough documentaries about them to know the struggle that was actually, you know, the the origin story of the actual company. And it's, it's so strange just to see them with a grip hold now after, I don't know if it's directly related to this, but I know one of their their really huge breakthroughs or their really big breaks was the Michael Jordan get, who started to wear their product and started to be recognized as one of the greatest basketballers of all time. You can see why marketing is such a powerful tool in this world because so often I'll see Novak Djokovic wear a shoe and I'm like, well, you know, not only am I going to start tennis, but I've got to wear that. And the same is true with a Michael Jordan. The same is true with an Ali of Kipchoge is like it, it has that marketing element. Cause here's one thing I've learned just through running my own company is there's just so many, and you seem a lot further down the line than where I'm at. I mean, I only started relax running back in 2019, but for me, one of the most amazing things and shocking things was just how many different pulses you had to have the finger on. Like your, 
not only have to put together a quality product, in your case, the, the actual fueling and hydration, but you also have to be able to market it well. You have to be able to, there's just a blanket of things that you need to be across the board with that it can be a little overwhelming, the nitty gritty details that you have to cover. How, how did you go about that? Like from when you launched in 2011, it sounded like you guys, you put together a bit more funding than what I was required to do for an online uh, business. How, how long did it take until you guys realized pretty quickly there were a number of elements that you had to be across and, um, you know, as much as it'd be beautiful just to pro focus solely on the product, there was a, a number of other things that were required for you guys to actually be able to hang around, in, uh, you know, well, at least till this point, 12 years later. Yeah, the, I think around, we were a few years in because a lot of the early sales that we made were what you'd call B2B sales, so like business to business stuff from me selling directly into sports teams and clubs where if I went in and closed the deal, I didn't really need to market that in the sense that I could usually find a personal contact or a, a get a warm introduction and say a football team and then go and do some sweat testing and sell them the product. That was pretty rewarding in the early days because one team would usually buy several thousand pounds worth of product at a time. So it kind of beat it beat selling to individual consumers initially because even a really even a really good customer as a consumer might say, let's say they're doing a training for an Ironman or an ultra run, they might buy a hundred pounds worth of products or a couple of hundred pounds worth of products. And they, and hopefully they'll come back and buy more, but it takes a long time for that to aggregate up to a point at which it's worth the revenue is, is, is sort of impactful in terms of running a business, paying yourself and all the rest of it. We, we started off focusing on B2B where, because if you're connected in an industry, you probably don't need to do a ton of marketing if you're lucky. But then it wasn't till about 2015 when I met, I was introduced to Dave, who's now our marketing director. And Dave came and did some consultancy work for us, helping us to set up a new website and, and to basically start to explain how we might market the products to consumer audience that we, that we really considered it. And Dave's idea which we still use to this day was to was to drive our marketing through a, a sort of content based strategy. So, in other words, putting out good educational content about fueling and hydration, creating a news an email newsletter list, and th with the idea being that if you can deliver good quality educational content into people's inboxes, they'll read. Then, obviously, a proportion of them will will feel like they've learned something. Will be at that moment in time be interested or considering trying a sports nutrition product and there's a chance that they might click through and buy your one as opposed to someone else's and we we still do we do two newsletters a week now there's there's a team of four or five people who are constantly producing content in the business um, because there's just, just a there's an appetite for that with people and we've always tried to be content and education first rather than sales we get a lot a lot of positive feedback from people who get our newsletter saying it's i usually delete you know marketing emails but these i actually learn something so i keep reading them which is always really nice to hear because that's the aim that's good well i've found myself on on your blog since i discovered you had one probably at least once a week especially it's usually on a saturday night <laughs> the night before i'm getting ready to go out for a long run just to make sure i've understood uh, you know the the best way to fuel and what particular gels i need at what particular time and yeah I've, I've found from a personal level that to be really helpful as well but you referred to this education part of the business being a really important one and that makes sense because 
from my perspective, the amount that I've learned about hydration in the last couple of years has been mind blowing. I mean, I thought I had a pretty good understanding that he's had to drink uh, some regular drinks, regular water throughout the day. But from from your perspective, like what are some of the, if you had three or four key mistakes or um, misunderstandings that just the general public, not even athletes, had about how to effectively hydrate, what would they be? I think one of the biggest ones that athletes make a mistake with is is actually counterintuitively is before big races and big events, people think you need to drink way, way more than you normally do. So you see people wandering around at an expo the day before a marathon, glugging loads and loads of water, thinking that they're worried. They, in, in a way, if it's going to be hot, they're rightly worried about the effect of dehydration on their performance the next day. But they don't realise that over-drinking is as much of a problem as under-drinking, that there's a sweet spot that you've got to hit. So I, I was definitely guilty of that as an athlete. I, I sort of felt like the messaging was always that more is better when it comes to hydration. And so, and you're always made to feel a bit guilty, like you're probably dehydrated, you're probably not drinking enough, so you need to drink more. And then, of course, you don't do it every day because you don't. You, you've got other things to pay attention to. But in the build-up to a race, when you really focus on performance, you go the other way and you start over-drinking. And that, that I think, we've, we've had a lot of success with, with people in sort of re-educating them around the idea that actually just drinking tons of water in the build-up to a race is not a good idea. And explaining to them about the role of electrolytes in you know preloading and and increasing hydration in the last few hours before an event, but also just in moderating your fluid intake and, and being sensible about it in the days leading up. So that that's one big misconception. And then the other one, the, the overarching bigger one, is that that there's kind of one answer for hydration. There's kind of a soundbite that you can give everyone, like oh you can just drink to thirst, or oh you can you just need to drink X amount per hour whatever and it's so individual it's got so many variables plugged into it that we humans would love a, a simple answer like a, a one a one-line answer to to clear everything up so we can save some brain space and move on to other questions but with hydration it's it's very nuanced it's quite individualized it it requires a little bit of trial and error it requires a little bit of scientific investigation sometimes and often you know people don't necessarily want to hear that it's more complicated so it's a case of breaking it down that's what we do in our blogs we try and break down different questions around hydration and and then try and provide answers not not the answers that you're looking for but ways in which you can find the answer for yourself which i think is the most important thing yeah so that's even for people who aren't necessarily competing i mean i've got so many friends and family who would have no real interest in developing any structured hydration plan because they've just bought into this idea that well drink till satisfied i mean that seems like a pretty good way to start or even just drink um, enough so that your wee's not yellow i don't know if that's a good sign or if that one's just an old wives tale like is that a pretty good tell on where you're at um from a hydration yeah, point of view funnily enough we have got a, we have got a blog about that one which gets loads of hits like that's one of the most that so when people search on the web and find that we get that drives a huge amount of traffic to our website but this the sort of short answer on that one is that it depends it can do so generally speaking if your we is really dark and concentrated then you probably are well that's a sign that your kidneys have decided they need to conserve water so they're not peeing out a lot of water, which is often a sign that your body water is low or that you're dehydrated. If your wee is clear, that's a sign that your kidneys think they need to dump some fluid because they think there's, there's 
more fluid than you need, which is a sign of you know, adequate or overhydration. But it's not always the case because we all know, I think, that if you drink caffeinated drinks, that can cause you to wee and cause you to lose more fluid. So that might trick the body. Um, generally speaking, if you get up in the morning, the first wee you do in the day, when you've had a, a night of not eating, not drinking, you're rested, everything's balanced, that can be a decent sign of whether you're waking up dehydrated or well hydrated. But later in the day, once you've started drinking things, eating things it, that can affect it, it becomes way less obvious as to whether that's a, you know, a kind of a red flag or not. Yeah, yeah, sure. Actually, you just mentioned the coffee there at the start of the day. That's the way that I start most days. I get out of bed. I've got a little mocha pot, which I discovered when I was in Italy a few years ago. It's enough to make just me and my wife a, a pretty good, solid three-quarter long black, which is always a good way to start the day. But one thing that I used to often hear was that um, coffee was a, a, a dehydrator or something that actually caused you to be dehydrated. Is there any truth in that? Uh, there, there can be in that it causes you, if you drink a lot of caffeine, or, so it doesn't have to be coffee, any drink, any anything with caffeine in it, it acts on the kidneys and, and causes them to excrete fluid rather than retain fluid. So the theory is that if you drink too much of it, it can make you dehydrated. Now, there's a lot of papers that have been published that suggest that because when you drink a coffee, you're also consuming a large amount of water normally, then that balances it out. So the net effect is not that you become more dehydrated. I would say from practical experience for me, I'm fine with drinking one, one or two coffees a day, maybe three at a push. But beyond that, I kind of feel like it does have a net dehydrating effect on me. It certainly doesn't make me feel great, so I don't tend to do it. And I tend to drink most of the coffee I have, like, first thing in the morning. I've usually stopped by, at least, like, nearly half past ten in the morning for me here. I've usually stopped by about now with the coffee, unless I'm abroad and I'm jet-lagged or something like that. Because I find that not only is it better for my energy levels, but it, it my fluid balance is better. Uh, it's a bit of a trade-off. But... I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a strong dehydrator for, for everyone, but I think you've got to learn your own individual tolerance for caffeine and figure out you know, how to keep your fluid balance in check if you're drinking a lot of it. Sure. Yeah, I've barely even uh, finished thinking about coffee at 10.30. 10.30 is an early cutoff period. I've heard some people say that lunchtime for them is, uh, is fairly, fairly, uh, fairly good. For me, I, I don't know if it's just because I've had so much practice. I mean, 2017... I challenged myself just to 12 months without coffee and I had I had no trouble really. I mean, I missed the social side of it. I like being able to go out and catch up with a, a mate and have a coffee. It was way cooler than asking for a mint tea, which is what I was doing. I was actually in London when I was doing it. And uh, I mean, there was no side effects. There was no symptoms. I didn't really notice that I slept better. So, but what was interesting was even getting back onto coffee. I can have a coffee at four o'clock in the afternoon and feel no side effects, as far as I can tell, unless I'm just completely oblivious to uh, the fact that I'm having a bad night's sleep on those particular nights. But I guess this is just that individual factor as well, because there's some people that I'll speak to as well, and they're very similar to you. Like if they have a coffee after 12, they're like, yeah, there's, there's no way that I'm sleeping that night. Yeah, I think it is individual for sure. And I reckon when I was in my 20s, I had no problem with drinking coffee round the clock. Um, and I look at the habits of like the... Most of the people in our office, a lot of them are younger than me, a lot of them in their 20s or 30s. And they'll, I'll hear the coffee machine like whirring away, grinding beans at three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And you know, that would have been me 20 years ago. But now 
uh, maybe maybe I've got older, maybe I'm a little bit more educated about it. I don't I don't know, but and I think there is a big genetic impact as well. It sounds like you're someone if you if you came off coffee and didn't suffer any withdrawal effects and that kind of thing, it, it maybe sounds like just the caffeine is not doesn't have you you obviously metabolize it really well it and it doesn't have a huge effect on you whereas my wife is completely the opposite like she can't touch coffee unless it's decaf um it really does make her jittery and feel terrible she gets all of the bad side effects of coffee without any of the benefits so i reckon a, a big part of it is genetics but potentially as well i think it it might well, my ex my personal experience leads me to think it might be a little bit age-related as well that perhaps as you get older you can't tolerate it as well. Although, having said that, I watch my mum and dad. They'll regularly put the coffee machine on after dinner in the evening and have a coffee before they go to bed. I'm like, I just couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> the one thing that gives me comfort is, I remember I used to work at a, an Italian restaurant here in Melbourne, and it was called La Notte, and it was a 24-hour restaurant originally. Uh, when I started working there, they often closed at sort of 12 to 2 and towards the end of the night, they'd always get that coffee machine going. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm not going to be antisocial. I may as well take one. And then I would do it without thinking, go home, sleep, no worries. And then just in recent years, I've started to, I guess, as I've started to pay a bit more attention and sleep has become a bit more precious. Having two kids under the age of three in the household, I've started to ask a few more questions about what's wise. But I mean, at the moment, I just think a crying baby seems to be the main problem keeping me up rather than any form of coffee. Yeah. But one thing I was keen to talk to you about, and this has been a, a real point of interest for me, and one thing I don't think we've actually spoken about before, is um, just the quality of tap water. And it's interesting, when I lived in London, it was the first time that we used to boil some of our water before we would drink it. And I'm not sure whether that was just a recommendation from a friend or whether that was just general guidelines. But funny story, in the house that we lived in, so small that we had to be, it was a little studio apartment, we had to be so cautious with the amount of things that we had that we boiled all of our water in a frying pan and, and just poured it from the fry pan into the actual uh, cup. But one thing that I, I noticed on a regular basis when we were in London was after we would boil that water, there was like this residue at the bottom of it. It looked like a, a white kind of residue that I thought that doesn't look like it should be in drinking water it didn't look healthy i don't know what it is i don't know if there's any side effects and then in recent years i've started to hear more people speak about just the poor quality of so much of the tap water that we drink whether it's you know an over uh, like too much fluoride or too much chlorine added to to keep it safe for drinking and so i've recently got like a reverse osmosis or not recently about three years ago got a reverse osmosis filter which claims to reduce the fluoride and the chlorine to a massive degree and then at the base of it it's got these little I don't, I don't know what the rocks are called but apparently it's just to reinstall some of the minerals i don't know whether i've just been sold fool's gold or whether or not that's something that's really beneficial because i mean 99 plus percent of people that i know are just purely drinking tap water and that's what i did for 29 years of my life is there any general advice that you can give around tap water and i, I understand this is probably highly variable based on where you're living and where the actual water is coming from. Yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm definitely no expert in this particular area, but for me, I'm, I'm pretty 
comfortable and tend to drink tap water wherever I go. I, I, you know, unless there's a warning, a specific strong warning not to, unless, and I'll, and I'll tend to, uh, admittedly, a lot of my travel will take me to the US, down to Australia, you know, to kind of Europe, like very westernized, modern parts of the world. So there's not usually a massive, um, there's usually no major kind of red flag to drinking tap water so i'm i'm pretty comfortable with that and that's that's my default most of the time like i say unless unless i've had a strong warning for some reason that we shouldn't then i kind of i guess i i lean back on the idea that 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 public water supply is a pretty fundamental staple for most governments to get right and take care of and 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 that so many people drink it that you would you would get very early warning signs if there was something going wrong I've definitely been to countries or places where either the mineral content's different or the way they treat it is different and it doesn't taste great. And sometimes then I might get a filter or, or bottled water. But I think that there's there, there's probably some, some arguments in some places for, for drinking filtered water. And if it makes you feel better and if it tastes better and encourages you, you to drink a little bit more, there's probably no, you know, there's, there's nothing bad with it. But... I do, I do think sometimes those things are a little bit overhyped and oversold, especially when they're taking certain things out, putting other things back in. There's, there's often, I don't think, not a lot of strong evidence to support that, you know, proper scientific evidence. And sometimes it's just a case of, you know, um, yeah, people um, get, getting a bit hyped up about these things. I think the, the, when you talk about the white stuff, I know that, you know, lime scale, where I live on the south coast of England, we my kettle gets gunked up with lime scale really quickly. I just think we have what, what they call hard water, you know, where it's, it's kind of got, got more of those minerals in, but yeah, I mean, whether, whether or not I'm a bad parent, I don't know, but I, I drink it. I get, I let my kids drink it. You know, I encourage my kids to drink it and, and sort of feel comfortable with that. So I think it's all, if you're traveling, it's always worth um, checking out and getting good, good advice on whether you're going to a part of the world where, people generally don't drink the tap water that's that's a warning for me but otherwise i tend to drink it yeah i think what you've just said is i'm a hippie and so is my wife i'm pretty sure <laughs> which is i mean i've got no real evidence to back it up i just had a mate who sold me a good argument um and then went on to tell me about how the world was flat so i thought maybe he's not the best source of information <laughs> but <laughs> i thought i'd give it a go man i was really keen to uh, to hear uh, about how you went with this European race recently because as I don't know if I mentioned it before we recorded it or not but Sweat Elite um, uh, your friends with Matt Fox I saw that he'd put together a, a nice little run across Europe what was it 400 k's in distance you're, you're going to be better at actually painting a picture of what happened because I've seen half the video that he's posted um, it looked beautiful it looked impressive I like the man bun that you were rocking and the sunglasses that you were you were wearing but what was the purpose of that what was the details of that yeah, so yeah, Matt Matt Fox obviously runs that um, runs his company, his kind of media company, Sweat Elite, which I followed for a number of years just because I was. He gets great insights into the way that elite athletes train and seem to pop up all over the world, running with like Kipchoge and Kenya and all these sort of things. And I always thought, oh, this is an interesting guy. He's he's doing interesting stuff. And then uh, I can't remember how we were introduced, but I think a mutual acquaintance or mutual friend introduced us and we helped Matt with some fueling and hydration for for marathons that he was running and did a little bit of collaborative work with him kind of hit it off I think Matt's you know Matt's a really he's a great guy um, and he 
reached out to us after he'd run he'd run i think it was uh was it tokyo or osaka he ran a marathon in japan not long ago and then after that his next kind of project was this euro trip run which is a team run 420 kilometers this year it was from cologne in germany to strasbourg in france each year it was it's only the second year of it but their plan is that each year it it starts in one town finishes in another and then the next year starts in the Finnish town and kind of moves on so it's going to move around Europe and Matt man mentioned that he was doing this race he's putting a team together could we sponsor you know them with some products because they're going to need a lot of gels a lot of um, hydration products for for a, a run in the summer like that and I kind of uh, stuck my neck out and said well yeah absolutely but I'd really like to run you know if you haven't got a full team or whatever yet I, I was pretty shameless in putting myself forward to have a go because I just thought it sounded cool thought this sounds like a great event and uh matt he, he he obviously deliberated for a while and then uh came back and reluctantly said yeah i think you can run in the team because <laughs> i was probably bringing the average speed down a little bit if i'm honest um but he was gracious enough to to let me have a go and we, so yeah we um we did very little planning in the build-up matt did a great job of pulling some fantastic people together it was six guys and um two girls we all met up in in Cologne in Germany a couple of days out from the event I brought some of the crew my business partner Johnny uh, Raf and Minty from our office to kind of ride a support bike and drive the support cars because we obviously going to need supporting through this and then we sat down the day before this race we got given the suggested route by the organizers and the only rule was you had to get from A to B coming through five checkpoints not running on any motorways or roads where you weren't allowed to run. You couldn't do anything illegal, but you could plan any route you like. And they gave you this suggested route. And, and we went at it with a, a bit of a mapping software to try and trim some of the some of the corners off that route to get the distance down. We got our route down to just about 400k in the planning stage. And then the, basically the next day, we sort of lined up at six in the morning and Matt led us off. And it was an incredible adventure. So how did it operate? So you're obviously not all running 400Ks. It looked like it was really a relay setting. But I don't know, what did you say there was? Six members in your team? Uh, there's eight members in the team. So six guys and two girls. That was the kind of standard setup for the teams. And then you could run as far or as, yeah, it was it was a relay. So only one runner was ever running at once. And you could run as, as far in one go or as little as you wanted. And we, we decided... Um, we, we had no previous experience of a race like this. So we just decided, right, what we're going to do to start with to get to get ourselves bedded into it, we're all going to run 10K. So that takes care of the first 80 kilometers. That'll get us going. That's, um, that's going to get us a few hours in without too much stress. And we had two support cars. So we, we, we set off, drove out. We, had, we used this uh, website, if you've ever heard of it, called What Three Words which is a highly accurate way of pinpointing places on a map. So every, I can't remember the size of the, the blocks, but there's every, it's like coordinates. Every single part of the globe basically is mapped with this, what three words. And, and it will say, so it'll have three random words that signify a spot on the map. And you can translate that into Google maps. So we drop pins into these, what three words locations in 10 kilometer stints along the route. And then the car would drive to the next spot the bike would lead the runner to that spot and then you'd do a handover and carry on. And so we did 80K like that and then we started to figure out that actually we're going to need to reduce the distance 
that we run each time in order to keep the pace high because Matt set off and set the bar pretty high. He was running like 3.30 per K for the first stint. And my, I honestly thought to myself, I'm like, well, I'm going to do well. I need to try and get under four minutes a K, you know, for my, because I figured I'm going to have to run about 40 or 50 K in total. And I didn't want to sort of pull a calf or hamstring or something early on. So I thought I'm going to try and keep it that. But inevitably, Matt runs 3.30. Then he hands over to this guy, Nicky, who uh, is a phenomenal runner. Nicky runs 3.20 something per K. Then I'm the third runner tagging in. So I had to, uh, I just went out way too hard and ran 3.30 something, like 3.39 a K on my first in. But then, of course, the bar was set. But in order to keep the pace high, we had to reduce the distances. Um, so we we gradually, a lot of us then ended up running like five or six k for the next stints, and then we and eventually we got it down to two or three kilometers, and we were switching over. So I would in the night time, I paired up with with Nicky for a while. He was riding the support bike. I would run three k, and then we'd jump we'd jump across. You know, I'd ride the bike for a bit. He'd run three k. We kept flicking through like that. We did that until about, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning because this whole thing took us 25 hours. And so three o'clock in the morning, though, we got word that we're in second place overall and the team that's leading is kind of, we're catching them incrementally. So we decided what we wanted to do was um, reduce the legs even short. So then we started doing one kilometre or like three, four minute runs through the rotating through that and then by the end with with only a couple of hours with only an hour to go we were literally running a minute or two flat out then having 15 minutes off and tagging runners through and sprinting so some of the guys nicky was running 245 per kilometer near the finish i think we ran we'll have we'll have run like a two hour 15 marathon between us in the last 42 k's and and we won the event in the end by 14 seconds which was incredible that is unbelievable. So who was the other team? Was it because this is one thing I was trying to navigate. And as I said, I only watched the first part of it. So I'm not sure I've got all the details, but I couldn't tell whether it was an event where every team was lining up at the exact same time. I know you said there's different routes that they can take, but I wasn't sure whether it was like, okay, at some point during the year, you can line up for this run. Here's a rough estimate of the, the direction that you got to go and the fastest posting wins. No, this was it was all done on one day. So there were two there were two start windows. So I think if you you had to predict your or you had to put down your average half marathon time as a team and then the, the organizers either said, right, you're one of the slower teams and you're gonna start at three in the morning, or you're one of the faster teams and you're gonna start at six in the morning. So there was that kind of three or four hour differential so that the slower team so that everyone could kind of finish at the same time. But it was very much so there was a start line and there was a finish line. It, there were, you know, it was a competition on the day, and and so we we started off in the second set because the team was generally on average pretty fast. As did the obviously the team that came second. I think they were called Team Vault, and they'd they'd won the event last time around. So they they were probably a bit more favoured than us, I guess, because they had a bit of experience. And we we actually did take the lead very early on because Matt pulled a blinder right at the start, and where. It was very funny. Everyone was lined up, ready to go in an obvious direction. And he'd spotted that he could turn around and go the other way and nip over a footbridge across the river and cut a kilometre off. So everyone ran. And then one or two of the teams, as included, like turned around and went over the early bridge. And we, So we were straight out in the lead. Um, and, and I think early on we got a sense, actually, maybe we could win this because we're out in the lead and we appear to be holding a gap with these other teams. 
But then we had a big navigational error at, in the middle of the afternoon. One of the runners missed the turning because the bike couldn't keep up with him on a steep hill. Um, ended up losing 30 or 40 minutes. And at that point, there was a bit of a feeling that maybe this is, you know, maybe we've screwed it. But then we nibbled it back. So there's a lot of highs and lows. It was a, it was a, it was a fun experience. Well, that was one of the things I was most impressed of when I even heard about the concept. I thought I, I struggled to get from here to Melbourne. That's an hour and a half drive that I do three times a week without taking a wrong turn. Like the idea that you're going to get 400 k's across Europe with a team of eight of you and not have at least one of these issues is uh, almost uh, impossible from my perspective. Was that something that each team had to wrestle with? How many teams were running? I think there's about 20 teams, 18, 20 teams, something like that. I suspect there were people that went badly the wrong way. We did a pretty good job, and that was down really to sort of Johnny, Raph, and Minty in particular on our side, who, you know, did a phenomenal job in planning the route and then also predicting ahead and looking ahead and sort of positioning the cars and the cyclists in in the right places to make sure that we didn't make a mistake. Because as much as it was about running fast, there's no good running fast if you're running in the wrong direction. So <laughs> we. We put a lot of emphasis on getting getting those logistics sorted out properly. And the guys just worked. They literally worked tirelessly for about 27 hours to get to get that right. And apart from that one error, we made very, very few. There were obviously they're like little tiny 100 meter excursions and things like that, where it wasn't clear where the track was going. But mostly we, we nailed it. And I think that was that was where we won the race actually was in the logistics yeah no that's impressive uh, what kind of training are you doing at the moment you said you, you got out to a, a pretty quick pace i know 330 something was quicker than what you anticipated but you're obviously at some pretty good level of fitness for that to even be a possibility for you what's your training week look like right now i'm so i'm doing a fair bit of um i'm getting back into swimming i've had a few weeks where, where i've been traveling and my wife's been traveling so it's been disrupted for for swimming but tend to try and swim twice a week, maybe three times if I can for about an hour. And then I commute. I actually did it today. I run into work, which is about, depends which way I go, but I can get about eight to 10 Ks in on my way to work. If I run directly home, it's about 4K. So I can sometimes rack up 10, 10 to 14 K, you know, kind of running in and out of work, which I just do at a steady pace. And then before that event, I was trying to get a bit of a tempo or interval run in every week as well, and maybe a long run at the weekend. But tend tend to just be ticking over with that. It's probably about six or seven hours of training a week, which isn't a lot, but it, it's just about enough to keep me keep me fit. Yeah, between sort of work commitments and how many kids have you got at home? Two. You got two, two. as well. A little bit older than yours though, so I get a bit more sleep these days. But I've been in the I've been in the hurt locker where you are now. Uh, with the I wish I could say I'm happy for you. I'm only happy for you based on the fact that that might happen in my life in the next couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, it does. It does eventually happen. My kids as well, especially my my boy, uh, the the oldest, who's now nine. He was the worst sleeper. You know, apparently, according to my mum, it was uh, it's all genetics because I was exactly the same. But yeah, how, how do you now, go now? Are you a good sleeper now? pretty good actually yeah when i get the chance so no, yeah good. i think, I think it. Man, so you'll get through it no you that's great i'm glad to hear i'm glad to hear well mate i know it's early in your day you got plenty to get done so i won't hold you up too much longer but i appreciate you uh jumping on here and it was it's nice to have a bit of an opportunity i was looking forward to, to chatting about um, a few things outside of running which we which we got to as well it's nice to hear a bit more about the business as well and 
one that I'm sort of feel, um, you know, from a personal perspective, invested in at least because uh, uh, the fact that I've got a Melbourne marathon coming up, but also because we've had so much to do with each other, um, you know, yeah. based on the fact we're on the other side of the world, it's, <laughs> it's been fairly consistent. So I'm looking forward to actually bumping into you at some stage. I'll, uh, I'll make sure I'll let you know if and when I'm over there. You've got to make sure you do the same for me next time you're in Australia, line up a run or something. 100%, mate. I'm very keen. I haven't been to Melbourne for, um, well, no, I haven't actually been to Melbourne, I don't think. So I've been to Australia a few times, but I need to get down there. So I'll definitely try and get out for a run with you. How is your marathon training going, by the way? Man, much better. So uh, probably, I, I can't remember the last time we spoke, but I had I had a lot of trouble with calf strains, as you know. Um, I'm about seven weeks into fairly consistent, well, very consistent training. But it's consistent in the sense I haven't done any real intense work at the moment. Of this week, I probably ran 35 kilometers. I did 12Ks yesterday at sort of 450 pace and felt really good. I'm going to keep building up to the end of July, and that'll put me 12 weeks out from the Melbourne Marathon. And then assuming that the body's holding up well, I'll keep inc increasing that long run. I'd like to get that up to sort of between 30 and 36Ks in the next eight weeks or so and do that fairly consistently for at least sort of six to eight um, it'll just be interesting to see how much intensity I can put into the actual training load because my biggest struggle now is if I get injured again, I'm going to refocus on a, a, a run that's not in October, yep. maybe early next year and just try and refocus for that. So my biggest stressor yep. at the moment is just staying healthy because, you know, if another calf strain creeps in, that's uh, that's Melbourne Marathon done and dusted. And I'm, I'm really loving the running. So I'm hoping, uh, uh, I mean, that's a long-winded answer to say it's good. But there's a there's an asterisk next to that. I hope it hope it continues because the first six months of this year was a was a nightmare. Yeah, I feel your pain there. I've I've suffered chronic you know calf trouble over the years, and I think it's only been in recent years. And I don't want to curse myself, but I've just honestly I've just slowed the pace of ninety percent of my running by. I used to run all the time at about four minutes a k, maybe a little bit quicker, and I was always on the knife edge of tweaking a calf or an Achilles doing that. If you look on Strava now, I would say my standard pace is 425 to 440k. Still solid. For my runs. And, but that feels to me always like within limits. You know, that's like comfortable. And then occasionally I do spike it. I'll do an interval session or a, a five, a part run 5k or those kind of things. And although you, you deep down know that you get more bang for your buck, if you can do that sort of training, you get, you get more adaptation there's nothing worse than than doing that, tearing a calf and then ended up six or eight weeks doing nothing because you just, just don't go anywhere. So I've become a lot more accepting. I think that, you know, optimal is actually, optimal can look like different things, but sometimes optimal is running a bit slower than you'd like, but getting the volume in over a consistent amount of time. Not only is that probably better for building up for a marathon, but it's actually better for your head as well. Because otherwise, like you say, you're just ready to throw in the towel the whole time if you're injured and for That's sure, good. for sure. That's what I've sort of been saying to myself the last few weeks. I'm like, I'd much rather go into the Melbourne Marathon underdone than just not at all. Yeah. Like, so that's the goal. But I mean, yeah, I've, I've sort of I've set my my target pretty high. I said I'd like to break two forty. So I mean, I've talked a big game now because it brought in a lot of Instagram, YouTube views, and <laughs> now I'm uh, now I'm being held to account by people who yeah. who should be doing that. So anyway, watch this space. Fingers crossed that all all comes together nicely. But um. I mean, well, we've got 15 weeks. So if, if I can tie that together, I mean, that's a that's a big base. 
Cool. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. And if you do make it over here, yeah, come and see us. It'd be lovely to see you in the office. All right, man. I look forward to it. All right, Andy. Thanks again. I'll leave you to it. Yeah. Thanks, mate. See you soon. See everybody.